0: It's Monday night, and we're with a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that dares to make comics and politics. But tonight, we're not really talking comics. Today, we're talking Star Trek with Star Trek Discovery, which wrapped the first half of its first season last night. Uh, Before I introduce our guest, let me introduce uh, the Mirror Universe co host of mine, Alana. How are you doing? That's about as much of Star Trek references as I got. That's about I got. I, uh, <laughs> I
1: I am I am high on the mushrooms like uh, John like Stamets is right now. So <laughs> I, I I've been high on Star Trek, and uh, ready to discuss it. High on the spores. the spores. Yes, the spores. But we know it's mushrooms.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's okay. So our guest, uh Asher, began their Starfleet career by founding their high school Star Club, which. Don't the Gay Straight Alliance, which actually sounds pretty awesome. Uh, now, in addition, totally obsessed with Star Trek Discovery, they're embarking on yet another rewatch of S- Deep Space Nine. We're not only invested in Star Trek, Sarah. Work, in education, research, and blogs about competitive figure skating at thefinersports.com. dot com. Sarah, how you doing? Welcome to the show.
2: I'm good. Good to be here. <laughs> Yeah, about when it. I possibly the one thing that I I have enough expertise on that I should be on a podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was so excited, um, you know, to be able to do this podcast for you because our our relationship of discussing Star Trek at great length extends back to our college years. Like that's kind of how we know each other. So it's uh it's good to have, have our, our reunion for talking about said materials.
2: Yes, the the our long-ago days of lying around in the one TV room that got cable at Sarah Lawrence College in 1999 at 2 in the morning watching the rebroadcast of new episodes of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that is that, that is, is why we are my- still friends.
1: <laughs> and actually, that's basically <laughs> my Star Trek origin story. Like, I just want to think it's interesting for our guests to sort of know where each of us is in relation to the series. I didn't watch Star Trek as a kid. My parents didn't watch any of that stuff. Um, I got into Star Trek... Like, I, at some point in time, I just started watching S Nine reruns in college. I, I found Sarah and a couple of my other friends were, like, were into it. Me, and then they got me super into it. So I'm really knowledgeable about Deep Space Nine, and I've watched very little Next Generation, and I've watched um, a moderate amount, I guess, of Voyager, and I've seen all the movies. Uh, but I'm not someone who identifies as like a hardcore Trekkie. I never read any of the add-on novels. You know, I've never been to a Trek convention specifically. But um, if it's a Deep Space Nine, I have a lot to... Uh, I always said that, that Deep Space Nine is Star Trek for political science majors. Um, and I still stand by that. What about you, Brett?
0: Uh, I i am on the periphery of the Star Trek fandom. Uh, so I've seen all the movies and... Um, multiple times. I've seen some of the T V shows. I don't think I've ever actually sat down and watched like an entire season, though I might have seen the entire season like just at different times. And the only one I could probably say I've done that with is Next Generation. Like I've seen some oh. of the original, some D Space Nine, some you know, uh uh Enterprise and Voyager and all but like I never sat down and really watched the series. Uh, comics, I've actually read some of them, um, probably more comics than I've seen episodes, weirdly. Huh. Yeah, uh, huh. and that was more of a recent thing than anything else, and then, yeah, like, I never read the novels, never been at a convention, like, I would say I'm a, I'm like a, uh, uh, if you're going on this, if we're doing the voting, scale, since we're political nerds, and there's the one through five, I am probably, uh-huh. like, a two when it comes to Star Trek. Gotcha, gotcha.
1: Well, I, I you know, I, I know that for myself, coming into this, I was thinking about getting going back and rewatching some earlier Trek. And um, Sarah put together a very helpful guide for uh, folks who have not watched much the Next Generation to sort of figure out which episodes we should watch. And that is on GraphicPolicy.com. Isn't that exciting? Yes.
0: I was going to go and tweet that up. I actually am going to use that to go and watch Next Generation. Once I've caught up on a couple other things to catch up, I'm actually going through that list because it's that damn useful.
1: And also just awesome. the description... Sarah's descriptions are just really fucking hilarious.
0: So I just endorse reading. <laughs> My descriptions for were basically
2: like, I wasn't planning for this to be published. I was just planning to like email it to Alana so that she could skip the bad ones. And then she was like, no, <laughs> other people need to see this too. So yeah. I'm glad that, <laughs> You guys are enjoying it, and if somebody's actually going to use it as a guide. And I did try to follow up and do a Deep Space Nine one and realized that the Deep Space Nine one requires like a spreadsheet and pivot tables because, like, which ones you should watch of that are so dependent on which characters you like and what you majored in in college. Because <laughs> depending on which one you skip, it's either Star Trek for political science majors or Star Trek for lit majors or Star Trek for people on drugs. It's, yeah, so it is my favorite, and it is the the objectively best Star Trek. But I guess I should go into my sort of background because I'm sort of here as the expert, I guess. Yeah, and oh,
1: I, yeah. I've
2: seen, okay, why don't I go into what I haven't done. Um, there are a couple episodes of, or a couple of seasons of Enterprise that I never got around to. There are a lot of comics I haven't read. I have not read the majority of the tie-in novels. There are a lot of games I have not played. Um, so the other way to say it is I have watched the original series, the three major 90s series, all of the movies. I've read a lot of the comic books. I own about half a dozen Star Trek novels, Um and I rewatch Next Generation and Deep Space Nine when I'm
1: sad. So. And and you and um, I watched watch the first movie together in college. I believe shouting at the screen frequently about like completely inappropriate observations and demands to see the cabin boy. This is all very vivid in my mind right now. So um, I, I, it's amazing how yes. different this is from any of those things. And I think that like I, I I'm glad that you know, I'm able to do this podcast with two people who are enjoying the show, um, but who also kind of recognize like the ways in which this is different from where we've come on. And I guess I I sort of wanted to start by asking you, Sarah, like, as the person with the most holistic sense of like where this fits in the Star Trek universe, I I see a lot of like, of the people who are negative on the show, and I am not negative on the show, I enjoy the show greatly, uh, basically saying that this show isn't really Star Trek. And uh, I'd love to hear your response to that.
2: Um, When I got really into Next Generation, which is the first series I got into in high school because of, shout out to Shira Karp Eliezer, who like recently reconnected with me, but who would talk about it at the bus stop until I gave up and watched it. Um, I kind of went back and, read some of the press on it, and people at the time went on and on and on about how Star Trek The Next Generation was not really Star Trek. And really what their arguments boiled down to was that Star Trek The Next Generation was made 20 years after the original series in a time with different values and different production capabilities and different expectations of acting style and all kinds of things. 'Cause you just you can't make a sixties show in the eighties and nineties and I think that really it's the same thing here where you can't make a sixties show or an eighties or nineties show now in twenty seventeen. We just we have different expectations from television, we expect things to look different, we expect acting to be different, we're much more arc based and have different social values and all kinds of things. So, I mean, making a sort of throwback 90s-esque Star Trek as much as Deep Space Nine in particular holds up, um, you just can't do it. You have to make Star Trek 2017 in 2017, and that's really what I think the discovery is.
0: It's, it, so it's interesting you bring that up, because I've got a few friends who are hardcore Trek uh, geeks on Facebook and I've been watching them talk and my observation of being like you know, doing the basics of Star Trek is that it feels like each is the product of their time and that Discovery is very much 2017 and you know mm-hmm. Next Generation was late 80s and 90s, you know was 60s and you know 70s and it's, it's like if you, it, you know, a lot of people say that Star Trek is always like about hope and these other things, like, I just think they're more of a reflection of what the hell is going on in the world when they're out. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: people seem to be, like, missing that with Discovery.
2: Yeah. Um, And I think some of the arguments are really that Star Trek doesn't have that darkness or shouldn't have it, and clearly those people quit before Deep Space Nine and Voyager or... Season three of next generation, which is fine, but it's also sort of I feel like people love to make that like Star Trek is this or isn't this based on which series they like the best. Mm. (laughs) So so it's not really a fair argument. There's people who I feel like are making the, this isn't or is or isn't Star Trek based on the like Mmorpg that they've been playing to like Ooh. deal with their Star Trek withdrawal, which I have not played, but which I have heard is first of all like going to lose me my job if I ever do play it, and second of all, really, really fun.
0: Hmm.
1: Duly noted. Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, like the one compunction I have about the show tonally is that I do really believe that there's a great value in having science fiction that helps us view the world in terms of better possibilities, like the opposite of a, of a dystopia. And, um, you know, we, uh, we obviously have a great deal more technology in this world. Um, but I was actually a little bit bummed when it turned out it was going to be a war focused story because right now I think folks really need help thinking about what a future could be that's a positive future. And I want to like, go and see like my post-capitalist world. And like, it's not like there was no drama or stories left to be told with that. There obviously are. Um, I I mean, I'm completely enjoying the show anyway, but I I kind of imagine like it would have been so much harder, but also more radical for it to not be a series that's as rooted in, war with people who are different from us.
2: Although every Star Trek series has been fundamentally a show about war with people who are different from us. Um, At at least at some point, Mm -hmm. I mean, next generation less so because it was more like trying not to get involved in wars among other people that are not us. But really, the rest of them, I mean, the original series was very much about conflict with the Klingons and Romulans. Deep Space Nine is about the Dominion War. Voyager is about the war with the Borg. It's that sort of... I think we forget that that's so so key to a lot of the running plot lines in Star Trek.
1: Uh, Yeah, but I'm just saying that, like, that's something that I think would be useful and this could potentially have been like a source for that. But I think it's also beyond where a lot of people's writing strengths lie, frankly. So. I think it's also
2: just beyond what people, I think it's sort of people think of Star Trek and they think of, Oh, there's some, it's big space war, space opera.
1: I guess that's always something which Star Wars has served for me in a different way than...
0: Yeah, I don't know if I I always thought... Like, Star Trek, I thought, was a mix of everything. Like, definitely militaristic. Um, And there was always a war aspect, for at least the stuff that I've watched. And and for some reason, I always... Like, I know I watched Next Generation the most, and it felt like every episode that I watched with Next Generation, like, there was some battle going on. Um, Just randomly, that's what all were the episodes... Watched, and it was a lot of the Borg episodes. I thought those were awesome. Um, But yeah, like at least the past stuff felt like it was a mix. Like uh, there was hope with the backdrop of war and militarism um, in this definitely like utopian type world, if you want to call it utopian. Um, It definitely is probably closer than we are now. But yeah, (laughs) like Discovery is definitely dark. And I mean, some of it was interesting. Is you know, obviously, we're going to probably talk spoilers on this up on the show. So to warn everyone listening, um, yeah, like I think I think some of that like darkness might have been hinted at as to why towards the end of the the last episode. But I mean, we can kind of get into that later, where where I think it might be going.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess when I found out that the show was was going to be a throwback, you know, to actually. Before the other series, I was a bit disappointed with that decision because you really are really hemmed in in what you can do. Um, and it's hard to do a show where you're going to have better effects and better makeup and, and better technology um, take place before the other things you've already seen. And it was a bit of a, I was a bit, it seemed like a strange choice to me. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Sarah.
2: And they made that choice. At their peril with enterprise, and one of the reasons Enterprise yeah. never really clicked was because it was set before the original series, but everything looked a lot nicer and that was one of my that's one of my chief complaints about discovery too <laughs> is that it's supposed to take place sort of shortly before the original series, and it mm-hmm. just looks totally different in ways that kind of go beyond production design um, and are probably necessary, but at the same time are really jarring when you're thinking like, oh, yeah, and like Captain Kirk is at Starfleet Academy now and any minute now, like it's going to start looking like the
1: 60s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the reason I never watched Enterprise at all was as soon as I found out they cast a white man as captain after the progress we made having you know like a a black character be the you know be the cat be the running the space base in ds9 i was like why are we going backwards why are we having a a white male captain again fuck noise and like me And when I found out that there was going to be another white captain, captain on this one, I was initially really frustrated by it. Um, I, I, you know, he's not the protagonist though. You know, there, you know, Michael Burnham, who's a, you know, who's played by a black woman, is the protagonist very clearly. Um, and I think it's an interesting choice to decenter the protagonist from being the ship's captain. But I still was like, I, why are you like a random white man? Here again, it. I mean, at least they gave you a vaguely ethnic last name, um, but it was. It just seems like sort of treading more in that area. Um, and in general, I, you know, the, I, I, I think that it felt like that was a step backward. We've just been going a step yeah. backwards in that way since DS9. I actually think, and
0: I feel you know, like the, it's. Go ahead.
2: All right, um, I feel like Discovery has been trying to and this has more to do with marketing than with the show itself, been drawing attention to, you know, how groundbreaking it is in terms of representation. And I feel like if it hadn't been making so much noise about that, I would, I would notice less that there are really a lot of men and really a lot of white people in this cast. Mm -hmm. Um, But like it, For a while, they were like, oh, look, first black protagonist, to which the internet responded by posting palm gifts of
1: Avery Brooks.
2: Yeah, for real,
1: dude. This show seems to be unaware of the existence of Deep Space Nine. And, like, it's one thing, like, I have no gripe with Anthony Grapp or Wilson Cruz not being aware of the fact that, you know, Dax was in A a Kiss with Another Woman in Deep Space Nine. Like, I don't blame them for not knowing that. They don't have to sit there with all that lore. But the show Bible and the showrunners should know that. And it feels a yeah. lot like people are trying, like people are, are forgetting what Deep Space Nine established. And, you know, Deep Space Nine, just for folks who don't know, is, had a kiss between a, a female character and another woman from her past. And it wasn't a developed ongoing relationship on the screen. And it was definitely sort of played up a bit, you know, for the male gaze. But it was also really, really powerful. And it got the show blacklisted by, you know, right wingers. And it was a really big deal for us in the 90s.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, I just rewatched that episode, and after it, immediately texted Alana, like, this episode is proof that Dax is the first queer character on this show, Dax is clearly bisexual, her friends' responses are such that they all know she's attracted to women, Then if this is a surprise, and it comes back, in, you know, in later episodes, that she's attracted to women as well as men, but, of course... They don't ever hang a sign over her head that says bisexual and bi erasure so I don't think we should be surprised by any of this but mm-hmm. um, Discovery does have the first major regular characters with a gay sign over their heads and their relationship is wonderful and one of the chief delights of the show mm-hmm. and I kind of feel like if they hadn't you know, run around bragging about how um this cisgendered monogamous relationship between two men <laughs> was groundbreaking that I would I would be just like this is the world's best stunt casting. I love you Star Trek. I love these actors. I love this relationship. But it's sort of tarnished for me by this sort oh. of off screen insistence that mm-hmm. it's much more groundbreaking than it really is.
1: And Sarah, for the listeners, explain what you mean about the symbolism of the particular actors they cast, because I think a lot of folks don't really know.
2: Okay, so any Star Trek that happens now is obviously a throwback to both the 60s and the 90s. And the two actors are Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz, who have both been out as gay men since the 90s. Wilson Cruz played... Ricky Vasquez on My So-Called Life, with, and for a lot of people of my generation, he was sort of representative of, like, oh, my God, you can be gay in high school, and that's real, Um, and you can be queer and non-white, and you can be queer and not gender-conforming, and all of these wonderful things. Um, And then Anthony Brack starred in the original cast of Rent, which despite being a Broadway nerd is not my favorite, favorite show, but (laughs) he's sort of 90s icon, gay icon. So putting two actors that are strongly associated with sort of queer self-discovery when the sort of 90s tracks were on is just kind of a cool casting move. I
1: also think it's been great because like, They are so wonderful with each other, and I think that, you know, I I am not arguing that you need to cast gay actors as gay characters, Lord knows. But I think that there's an extra richness provided by it in this case Mm -hmm. because of the external story of these being two actors who both came out by choice before it was super easy to do that. And they also, like, they just feel so comfortably gay, and it feels like a lot of the time in shows when they have gay characters, particularly gay men, they feel the need to completely make everybody seem entirely like hetero as hell, even if they like, and they don't, they're not like comfortable with having any sort of variation of how people perform their gender and their masculinity. And because they have two guys who are actually gay in these roles, they like give them the space to just be themselves. And as a result, like they scan as gay, like I'm watching the first episode and I'm sitting there and I'm like, these guys are obviously gay. And how great is it that you don't have to actually be like, look at these two guys. They are gay. They still scan as gay. And there's that, that the authenticity, which they can do without playing into stereotypes because like, this is their lives.
0: I have to say something. When I first saw both of them on the screen, I am, you know, straight white cis male. And I sat there and recognized how like these two guys were two icons and how big of a deal, they were to be cast on this mm-hmm. series. Like, you know, this yeah. is a this is like a beyond a and like you know I like feet and all that, but I didn't watch my so called life. But I still recognized them and said, oh my god, this is gonna be huge because. And then watched the the episodes and I was like, okay, they are two gay characters, absolutely like sweet, cool. This is gonna be this just feels right and awesome and, you know, kudos to them. Uh
1: mm-hmm. huh. And
2: also um, Stamets is in the same way that like Star Trek has this history of having a protagonist and then a character that the show is really about. And I feel like he is like Spock or like Data or like Seven of Nine in that way where like, and I think they sort of tried to set up Saru as that, but it ended up being like crazy mushroom infected Stamets is like, the equivalent of that where he's sort of like the, the, the sort of representative of the
1: alien. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I, I enjoy him. Like I'll just say straight up the best episode of the season without a doubt was the time loop episode. And um, it was really after watching that, that I just, I wanted to jump out of my skin with joy for the show. I not only was I just full of joy for Stamets being high on mushrooms I was high on joy for the nature of the time loop and I was high on joy because there was two women romantically slow dancing with each other in the background of a scene. I like literally jumped from my couch. That actually had an even bigger emotional response for me than just like seeing, you know, Stamets interact with Culber together. Like just seeing these two women in the background incidentally being queer with each other. Um, But uh, everything in that episode had such amazing energy and, it's such a great episode that can be. It can. You can watch it on its own without the X. Without you know, it really is a capsule episode, but it also con- contributes to the arc. So it's like doing both of those things. I mean, I just freaking loved that episode so damn much. I think it might have been one of my favorite hours of television of the year.
2: It was definitely my favorite episode of the series so far, mm-hmm. and. It nods back nicely to a similar episode of Next Generation, which, in my opinion, is one of the best episodes of Next Generation. Um, and it's just, and we were talking too about how one of the problems of Discovery is its darkness. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the best episode of this initial run was also its latest episode. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's also the queerest, like not just because you have the background lesbians slow dancing and you have Stamets <laughs> and Culber going to their room together at night. They didn't kiss goodnight, which made me want to fucking punch somebody. Like, I don't understand that, but whatever. Um, but it was also the queerest because you have these wonderful conversation that Michael Burnham has with Stamets, where she, you know, talks about how she's never been in love before. And he, he's like slow dancing with her in this very paternal way he's mentoring her as she comes into her own sexuality basically and he says to her never hide who you are and the fact that they have the gay actor tell um, Michael Burnham never hide what you are is so perfect on every level because one in a show that takes place in the future it is not acceptable for people to be having angst over being queer or not being queer like that can't be a thing but in the world that we live in now, obviously that is a huge problem that people are struggling with. So by having the gay male character be a guy who's confident in who he is, comfortable in his relationship, he's got his shit together um, in his life, but explaining to this character who is straight that it's okay to be who you are, that's really a message for the audience, right? So it's not pulling me out of, you know, like my criticism I had on from, from Thor the other night where I was saying like, you know, Thor does, is not capable of a, you know, was not, not Thor movie, but Wow, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but anyway, the point being that like the show itself is in a world in which homophobia does not exist, um, but it's able to convey reassurance that we're that you know that queer people, you know, are okay as we are, um, without making homophobia be part of the show, and it's doing that by having the gay character reaffirm the female heterosexual, nominally, I guess, <laughs> who, who can say uh, character sexuality on the show? So that just wraps it up in a bow for me. I hope, hope I explained that well.
2: Yeah, I think you right? did. Okay. And I feel like <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of the queer representation really goes back to that, where it's how do you use... Um, a, a world in which homophobia is is essentially in the past to still present um, a pro-queer and anti-homophobia message. And that's kind of what it does. It sort of it ties into another one of my very favorite things about this show, which is a really, really subtle thing. Um, but it's shot in this, like, incredibly gorgeous high Um, just lovingly, and the close-up shots are lit in a way that um, really draws attention to sort of the angles and the shadows of non-white faces in a really smart way but beyond that um, there are two female leads Burnham and Tilly who is like who in addition to Melting My Butter um, is another fantastic thing about the show but Mm -hmm. um, they, they put no beauty makeup on them or very minimal beauty makeup like they're wearing standard sort of makeup to compensate for lighting and stuff. But you can see all of the imperfections in the skin of both of the women. And um, Burnham in particular um, has some unevenness to her skin and the light sometimes plays that up especially when she's under stress or when she's tired or when she's like covered in blood and stuff like that and I just love the fact that these two women who in reality would not be spending an hour putting their faces on every morning do not spend an hour putting their faces on every morning on this show and look astonishingly beautiful the way they're
1: lit and the way they're shot Hmm. Yes, very much. <laughs> very much. <laughs> um. I uh. I was wondering about like there's a couple of, you know, things along the. The other ways women are portrayed that I was thinking about, like, you know, we have female Klingons looking much more humanoid than male Klingons. Um. And, you know, I just generally sort of take that to be, like, a product of uh, men not want to look at women who they don't want to fuck. Um, and looking more like a human than looks like a strange alien is generally conducive to men. I mean, not all men, but um, finding you attractive. But um, I have also found, like, okay, like, you know, Laurel, um, the, the female Klingon, is an amazing character. You know, I, I'm sure it would be harder for her to convey some of the subtleties of her performance with, you know, as complex of a makeup situation. But I still am always a little bit suspect of, like, okay, the women can still, the women still have to, you know, look feminine in these ways. And the men are like grotesque. I get you.
2: Although I feel like, especially by the end of the, Half season when she's got those burn scars on half of her face, she starts got to, to look pretty, pretty, pretty scary and pretty monstrous. Um, I agree, but I agree with an asterisk.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her performance is amazing, though, and I think she's the most interesting villain, you know, in 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 quite some time. Um, I let's about the Klingons a little bit, though. I I um was like super sketched out by like them being the way they're characterized here in a lot of ways. Um, I think like, you know, I, they definitely, Klingons definitely are excellent at architecture. That's without a doubt, but um, they seem to be really low on rational motivations in some ways. And I, the, the, the makeup, I just sort of associate with like some stereotypes. And I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen some black critics, you know, say that they felt the show was racist. I've seen other black critics disagree with that. Um, we are three people who are not black, so not necessarily the best people to debate that. But I don't know. I just wanted to sort of flag that as something that when I saw, like, from the very beginning of the season, like, these, you know, they're, like, irrationally trying to, you know, fight. Like, when they decide they want to blow up the tree humming planet. Like it makes no sense. Like it makes sense for them to go to the tree hub, to the, 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 the 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 planet where the trees are humming, and try to conquer it because they want to claim its resources. That's a you know an evil thing. That's realistic. But being like, oh, we're just going to go blow it up because it's there. Like that doesn't even make sense.
0: But didn't they, don't they want to blow it up to get rid of because that might have been able to knock out their cloaking?
1: Well, not if they're the ones controlling it. Like.
0: Well, so yeah. I just took it as. They like, hey, we'll instead of taking it over and all, we're just gonna get rid of it. <laughs> it's Did they know that it do. was
1: that it was messing up their cloaking? I thought it was just like a beacon I that was calling
0: don't know. them. No, that's a good question. I, I
1: know we know that, but I don't know that they right. know that. I don't know. So I don't my, know. What do you guys think about the Klingons?
0: <laughs> so mine is, and I, I, I
2: feel like the Cl- sorry, I feel like the Klingons. My initial reaction was like, this is whoever they hired to do the makeup did some really cool conceptual art and it has more to do with conceptual art than any kind of continuity of what Klingons are within the greater Star Trek universe. And especially for me as kind of a nineties Trek fan, one of the things that's wonderful about nineties Trek is that it takes a sort of, villainous species like the Klingons and then gives you all kinds of characters that subvert that expectation. And then they do it again really beautifully with the Cardassians later on. Um, And then we sort of reverted to like all Klingons are jerks, despite the fact that the Klingons continue to have the most awesome technology and like, by the time Voyager rolled around, like you fully believe that there was just an army of Klingon nerds somewhere. And this version of Klingon, like you're like, how could this group of like hot headed, crazy people possibly have their like cadre of nerds creating cloaking devices? Like, it, they tend the the Klingons back in to a much smaller sphere of personalities and abilities than I think the universe had gotten to in sort of trying to correct that. That I feel like Star Trek corrected itself in getting away from that sort of like planet of everybody being alike and this is reverted
0: to that a bit.
2: And it's reverted to mm-hmm. it with Saru too.
0: Yeah. My take on it is that they have a at least where the series started, it felt like they had a very there was an allegory they wanted to tell and they wanna talk about they want to talk about religious extremism and the Western response. And we you know, watching the, know, probably the first three ish episodes where it's really apparent that I think that's the theme they were going with. Like it feels like they've gone really hardcore with the Klingons being religious extremists and for a while there you have this religious sect that was was the extreme, but feel like they have kind of co the greater Klingon like group to follow them in a lot of ways and you lose some of the I think more interesting discussions that I was expecting them to go in. Um, and, that, and that kind of backs up to why I don't have an issue with a white man being um, in charge, with Lorca being in charge, is because I he's an asshole, and I, I want the Western response, you know, with the response that I think they were going with, or will be going with, or for a while going with, was the extreme reaction to this religious extremism that we saw under Bush, seeing under Trump, um, and I don't want that to be anyone – portrayed by anyone but a white man because it has oh. been a white male reaction. So some people have that they thought the, that Lorca was supposed to be like the terrorist and the Klingons were the best but I've seen it as the Klingons were like the religious extremists that was like the initial on like the, the of the dead. They were the Klingon version of ISIS that has infected the rest.
1: Hmm. Huh.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I could be totally off, but that was like that was way I've yeah. been reading it. So uh, I don't know. I I, can't, I don't seem quite that take on it anywhere, but
1: no, it's a good knows. point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I could be okay. totally smoking something. Who knows? <laughs>
1: No, no, no. I think it's interesting, and I, I mean, speaking of speaking also of everything Klingons. So this is like a super petty thing. This is going from like your rapid deep observation to this. Aren't Klingons supposed to be ridiculously stronger than than humans? Like I'm not yes. talking about like the Incredible Hulk. Yes. But like they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be significantly stronger than humans. Not like Incredible Hulk levels, but like yet we have all of these regular humans, you know, who are in good shape, but still like. Fighting with these Klingons who are so much physically larger than them in the show, it's a little bit weird.
0: And also supposed to be really good at hand-to-hand combat, I thought. hmm There's a lot Isn't of human that hand-to-hand routine? combat. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, Sarah, yeah, you could tell us if we're right or wrong. it's a little bit
2: this, nonsense. Yeah. No, you're right. It's um, it's when you're saying yeah, they're not supposed to be incredible Hulk, but it's like they are supposed to be sort of like planet where the average person has the strength of you know. Somebody who's in the NFL. Um, Right, right. (laughs) And like Klingon martial arts are like the thing you learn if you're into martial arts. So they've got that down. And yeah, I mean, I understand that like the good guys have to win because they do, but it's still, it's a little bit like, yeah, maybe not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, it's interesting. Space opera. Yeah, I you know, I don't know, you know, I haven't watched enough Star Trek to know if this is a common thing. It seems like they're playing a lot of uh the Klingons torturing people. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. like a normal thing we've seen in other series or this is just they like we're just going to do a lot of torture in this series.
2: There's a lot of torture in Star Trek. There's there- like <laughs> I mean, that might be an interesting article from like the, the like Rick shirt Kirk through like the um the
0: four lights Dakar or whatever being
2: tortured by the Cardassians and there's there like are four a, lights. It, it, oh my
1: god wow there are four yeah. lights
2: there there's a lot of torture in Star Trek.
1: I feel like we might have to bring on Spencer to talk about torture with us as well next time then. But yeah,
0: uh, I mean, this fascinating has, this, conversation.
1: I know. Um, so yeah, this is this, up. Uh, this definitely the end of the season really, you know, dealt with like PTSD. And I was very, mm-hmm. very glad it did because, but before it did, I was sort of like this show better deal with the PST that Ash Taylor must be facing or else it's really sloppy because good God, he just survived torture for months on end. And, um, I'm glad the show like definitely like talked about it and, and handled it. And it shows, it shows you how exploitative Lorca is as a captain that he's like, we're just going to have you go be security chief, even though you haven't had a psychiatric evaluation,
0: any care or downtime. Hope that's cool. Um, was well, that It's, not, you know, it's beyond like just torture? Like he was straight up raped too.
1: Yep. Yep. We
0: think he is. You know, there are yes, theories I was, that I was, was going to
1: get to that. In a minute, But I wanted yeah. to actually, but, but if we are going to talk about that now, I wanted to make an observation, which is that it, it was, it was immediately, immediately clear to me from the episode in which Ash is introduced um, when he says that, you know, she took a liking to me. Uh, it was immediately clear to me that that meant that he was that, that she was basically raping him and was keeping him alive because yeah. she wanted to continue raping him. Interestingly, I have observed that not all men watching the show immediately drew that conclusion um, and did not actually recognize it until they saw the flashback in the last episode of the season.
2: Was, and they that... were like,
1: wait, what? They had sex? And I'm like, "Uh, yes, he, the first time you see him, he talks about how she raped him. Yeah. that's." Right. So, I took care <laughs> yeah, that. You did? Okay, cool. I just, I just, oh, just yeah, yeah. Of like, it, then it may perhaps, this is something which is so unfathomable to like, a lot of guys that it doesn't, you know, and it's something that you don't see on the shows, but it was like, I don't know, I thought it was really obviously the case, and definitely, like, it's terrible, and, like, we should talk about that.
0: And he shouldn't I mean, just be going
1: right back into the breach to deal with them without getting psychiatric like, yeah, care in between.
0: Well, we've seen at this show, uh, Lorca, the whole, there was the scene between Lorca and the uh, Admiral, I'm totally blanking out her name. Um, and the Admiral, yeah, she says he's
1: she's yeah. not, he's not, he's not okay yeah. himself. I mean, it right. I, so I was a great way to in her skills here. as a psychiatrist. It was a great way to put Cornwell, skills that was as a psychiatrist, it. Cornwell, to have her yeah. find, you know, to have her try to talk him out through his, um, his panic attack. But I not panic attack his uh, his flashback. But um, I did find it a little bit corny that it's like his thoughts of his love for Michael Burnham that what shook him out of his moment of terror on the ship. I was like, really, you're going with power of love. That's what shakes them out of it. It's a little PTSD. corny, but
2: it's also kind of what they teach you when they're trying to teach you how to get out of those, those sort of perseverating thoughts is like, they find your like anger that gets you out of it. So it was corny, but also kind of psych, psych, psychiatrically
1: realistic. So I kind of, okay. gave it a cool. Well, that's what you said. That, that's the power of love. Let's <laughs> talk about that relationship because um. You know, it's interesting, like I I've I have very mixed feelings about it. Like, on the one hand, I'm like obviously these two gorgeous people are going to be into each other because they're busy being gorgeous. But um it also felt very rushed and very like, look at these people being heterosexual together. I, I don't know. I, I kind of have feelings all over the map with it. I feel like with my with my Michael's gone through with her past, it feels like it would take her, you know, a lot longer to Be willing to open up to somebody in those ways. And the way that they're talking about their future together, I'm like, you guys haven't even had sex yet. Like, what? This is not a conversation you should be having at this point. And I know that war does make people, you know, consider their lives in more stark terms and think about their future in different ways. But it felt like it was a little bit all over the map. I I mean, I really appreciated Tilly's relationship with Burnham um, in terms of Tilly encouraging them to get together. And I enjoyed their flirtation, you know and those little pieces of it, obviously, in time loop episode, but uh, I don't know. I mean, did you guys feel like they're a believable romantic relationship with each other? I feel Um, like if
2: it had run at, like, half of this speed, it would have been really plausible, because it's clear uh, what they like about each other, and it's clear why they work together, but it just needed more time to be plausible, I feel like, for all the reasons you said. Like, it, it did. It felt like they needed to get it to a certain plot point by the end of the half season, so they sort of rushed through the emotions.
0: hmm hmm Yeah, it was probably a little bit quick, but the other is, I mean, if he was tortured and she's got the SD2 of her own, it's possible that they might rush it to try to match other things that they're feeling. So mm-hmm. in that way, I think it's somewhat real. Stick at the same time.
1: Well I think it's um, more realistic that he would do that since he's like I mean if he, God, I hate to talk about the fan theories. If he's who well, he yeah, he is the other. other more I was about to get into if it's more believable yeah. for him to do that because like he's probably had lots of relationships with people in the past, right? You know, he's like an adult right, but um but you know, her background of having never been in love before and coming from like this Vulcan training I think does really you have to acknowledge the way this is Vulcan culture, you know, kind of fucked up her life.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, she could also be, this is her first thing, and she's just even rushing into it. So I kind of, I, I can see it. Um, it does feel rushed overall. The other is, I'm going with, the, if you go with the fan theory, too, that maybe he's like a sleeper agent, then maybe he is going to rush this so he can actually do his mission, and he's manipulating her.
1: So, ooh, interesting. I have theories now after watching the end of the season that I did not hold. I, you know, I, I really was like against the be- idea that um, Tyler is like a crayon undercover um, partially. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't want him to be that. <laughs> and partially because I felt really like <laughs> your science is just going to just do that. This. this is the thing that can happen. Yeah. But after watching his relationship with um, Laurel and then what she says to him, I, I think it's more of a Manchurian candidate situation. Like she's implanted yeah. some memories in him. She's you know, lined him up to fall into line. She's manipulated him in some way, but he is a person. He is not, he is not, you know, and I mean, I know that there's a whole bit where uh, the white skinned Klingon, whose name is escaping me. She tells him he has to sacrifice everything in order to come back. But I, I don't think that she just has, that guy's brain in Ash Tyler's body, and if it is that guy's brain in Ash Tyler's body, then that guy's brain is going to eventually opt out, and he will like go on to live the rest of his life as Ash Tyler after like the end of the next season or something like that. I, I think we're going to yeah. continue to see Ash Tyler as a person, acting as a person who's gone through some trauma. Um, but yeah, there's at least venturing candidate situation going on at a minimum. But, I don't know. That's Where do you guys fall on this? Yeah, what my do you think, Sarah? Is,
2: I feel like we're just trying to theorize ourselves out of the fact that the writing was rushed and <laughs> we're not crazy about this. Like, there are all kinds of ways to talk your way around it. But in the end, like, I just needed more time with these characters if I was going to invest myself in their romance. Well, then, cool, but then- to be because of the speed mm-hmm. of it, it just feels like a plot point which is fine, but, you know, I, I wanted to ship it more.
1: Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, I'm not, like, trying to justify them because I, like, not going to lie, like, was really enjoying the dynamic that Michael had with Tilly as its own thing, for example. But, um, you know, I there is still the point that, like, Laurel told white-skinned outsider Klingon guy, like, you'll have to give up everything in order to come back and triumph and then he's gone from that point. Like that's a bit that's a bit of a
0: It's
1: a bit of yeah. a suspect well, important thing to say.
0: did she say at the end? At the end of this episode she calls sir, I think Does she? Well when she's in jail and like the alarm goes off and he runs, I thought she said sir. I can never quite I didn't quite
1: No, she hear. said soon. She said soon. soon. Okay. It's coming so I, wasn't to sure. soon. I
0: didn't quite hear. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't understand. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask both of you like what the hell said.
1: Well, we're here to answer um, that definitely <laughs> soon. Um, let's go back and talk about like the show handling rape for a bit because Sarah and I were kind of beginning to talk in that direction briefly because there was a, I was trying to remember and neither of us remember. and Maybe Brett you'll remember. The internet wasn't helping me. Somebody earlier in the series made a joke about like don't Maybe it was hardcore mud. It seems like to get be in character for him to say that because he's an asshole. Made some sort of throwaway joke about like you're getting it on with a Klingon. Like don't humans don't even have the right? Don't don't humans not have enough dicks basically for that? It was essentially some joke joke about that basically. Um, and you know I that was sort of a throwaway line, and I was like, oh god. Well, I, I guess now we know the answer to that question. Duly noted. Um, but the. Uh, you know, the, the, then, but but now, like in light of like, like okay, like the show's actually going to acknowledge that this character was raped, and that that's a significant thing that happened to him, and that he's not just going to brush off. He didn't that him sub that that him being raped was not something that enabled him to just quote easy or whatever, like compared to the other people who were being tortured in other ways, you know, and his survivor guilt and all that. Like, I don't know. I, I think that like that's kind of complicated and fucked up like line and I I think that um I don't know. We when we, when I we think like about I feel like Mud M- is yeah. the
2: real villain of the series. Mm. <laughs> um I feel yeah. like that's how he's being set up. And he was he appeared that the same character obviously played by a different actor appears in two episodes of the original series. So it's a big like throwback nod
1: for People like me. Um, and scenery chewing. But, I mean, so much scenery. Yeah, chewing. the scenery
2: chewing is consistent. A lo- there's a lot it. of continuity in his backstory. And mm-hmm. my suspicion is that, in very much the same way, like Q popped in and out of Next Generation and turned out to be the real connective tissue of like a different kind of villainy. I feel like you could make an argument for Gareth as having the same role or maybe Dukat. Hmm. Deep Space Nine is complicated. Don't yeah, basically like the <laughs> start. Um
1: <laughs>
2: but um that he's got that sort of trickster like quality that is sort of a Star Trek hallmark. Uh, he's hmm. gonna be back, obviously. Yes. Um and so I feel like those kinds of comments and especially the really cringeworthy stuff that doesn't seem to connect is some of the most purposeful
1: mm-hmm.
2: that like a lot of what he says is going to come back and that he's going to
1: really tie a lot of things together. Oh yeah. I know that wasn't me criticizing the line at all. That was me saying that that line no. is something different no. than what it first No, it, It's sort be. of me
2: validating a line that a lot of people have complained about. As, like, mm. it's an awful line because he's awful. And, yes, please cringe more. And But when we first heard that line, we didn't really see the extent of it. And I feel right. like that happens a lot with him.
1: And just note, I'm not sure that it was him, but I can't remember who it was, and I don't know who else it could it be, It must frankly. have been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who else would be that asshole? Right. But, um, but like, yeah, my point just being like, again, this is the point, like, it's not a question of anatomy. That's not why she's raping him. Like, let's like, <laughs> acknowledge that. Thank you.
0: Has that ever been touched upon in Star Trek? Has what? Sorry. A character being raped. Has that ever been touched upon in Star Trek?
2: There is a terrible episode of The Next Generation where everybody gets mind-raped. Um, I'm trying to think of – there's some stuff in Voyager, but I can't put my finger on it.
1: Interesting. There,
2: I think it's also a bad episode. Um, <laughs> so I think the short version is, yes, poorly.
1: Yes, I'm okay. poorly. Okay. Well another thing with Harrisport Port Mudd is that he he delivers this whole line about like a critique of the federation and the critique he has of the federation is a legitimate critique but it's not what he believes right so i i think it was i think it was cool that the show sort of gave us a chance to hear like what uh a what what a, what someone who is living under the federation might criticize it for um you know, and that, like, it does, and, and doesn't act like everybody in the world is, um, yeah. you know, thinks that, that, that the Federation's mild, that, you know, there's basically, he's saying that the Federation is still imperialist, uh, it acts like it's not imperialist, but it is, and what if all these other places and cultures don't want to be discovered, I mean, that whole question about the ethics of first contacts and all of these rules, which the shows have always sort of mushed up and dealt with and codified in different ways are really important points, but I don't want anyone to be fooled for a second into thinking Mutt Kort- actually gives a fuck about those things or has any actual political principles. I have heard a few people seem to be confused by that point. So, um, yeah. yeah.
2: And that question has been dealt with earnestly and thoughtfully somewhat on Deep Space Nine and extensively on Voyager. So like Star Trek has, taken on that particular criticism of the Federation systematically by people who really believed it, which should really just highlight even more that Harry Mudd doesn't really give a shit about that. He's just spouting it to piss them off.
1: Yes. And because he knows how to sound like a human, like that's like the lines he's heard people say that have made other people have emotions Successfully, so he's those are the ones
0: he's he's pulling on. i mean, he's yeah. basically a war proctor in the in the show, right? Like, he seems to be playing oh, yeah. on both sides and all that. Like that's kind of the vibe I got from him.
1: So I have a mystery I want to propose to you guys here. Did Lorca sabotage the admiral's blaster? Now we all know that he sent her off to go on the on Serik's mission. You know, because he's like, oh, good, she's off my plate. Maybe she'll get killed and she won't report on me. Wow, that's a terrible thing to do to someone who I'm friends with, who I just had sex with, but that's the kind of guy I am. I'm Lorca. But I have had some people say that they thought that uh, he sabotaged her blaster to fail. I I don't know. That feels like a bridge too far to me.
2: I feel like people are very busy fan theorying way beyond (laughs) what this show intended, and that sounds like another example of that. (laughs) Mm-hmm. We have, I mean, the Star Trek fandom is probably the first to raise fan theory to a verb, and it's just come right back.
1: But well, folks, well, you would agree though that like he's definitely a character who manipulating, who manipulated that situation for his own, for to save his own neck, and is just doing that. And like you know, his speech that he gives in the last episode of the season about how you guys were just scientists and now you're war heroes. Like that was a really fucking compelling speech. He knows how to manipulate people. Like that's mm-hmm. really his skill. And he knows how to get what he wants. And he totally if got the wants to
2: draw attention to first it should be here it's Lorca, Starfleet's first asshole captain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he got the, the the security guards who were marshaling Michael Burnham to her new arrest, her new place of, of detention. He killed that person in cold blood in order to get Michael Burnham. I, I don't know. Like that's pretty villainous right off the top. Well, yeah. one thing that I mean the
2: larger think, scale villainy of taking this person that is like the most hated person in the Federation and giving her a job. Like when people do that in real life, they you know. We respond the, We respond to them as we do with, like, Ben Manafort. We do not respond yeah. to them. And they're like, yay, she's out of prison.
0: Yeah. Which is why I think Lorca is supposed to be, like, Trump or or Bush. That's who I think he's supposed to be. Like, we're not supposed to be like him. And he is very much like a hey, you are with me or you're against me. Um, I'm going to do everything. Like, you know, we're Trump. Trump mouths off. We're, we're going to nuke him if we have to. That's Lorca. All right. I have to, like, duke a planet to go win? Fine, that's what I'm going to do. Um, like, he's not supposed to be a likable person.
2: Yeah. Again, like, we, it feels like, I feel like a lot of this conversation is like, so who's really the villain
1: here? And yeah. he's certainly in the running. <laughs> One thing that I'm really looking forward to and hoping to get more of in the next run of it is I want to get more from the other characters in the show. Um, for me, like, the ensemble cast is an essential part of why I like Star Trek in the first place. And I like the characters that we have, but it doesn't feel like there's enough of them. Like, I want to know what's up with the woman with the cool hair on the on, in the, uh, the, the helmsman and then the other helmsman
2: the robot? Who's on the
1: other ship. No, no, the other woman, like, with yeah. the robot eye. I mean, I'm, I basically think of them as the woman with the cool hair and the woman with the robot eye. Like, I want to with their stories, I want, especially since we don't have enough female characters. Like I want to see more from them, you know. And then we saw the guy who operates the uh, the transporter beam in this last episode. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a man of color. I'm like, I want to see more from him too. I want to build, I want to build out that ensemble a little bit more. And we definitely got enough reaction looks robot from the woman who had been on the Shenzhou, who has the robot eye, and is now on this boat. That like Try more from her in there, at least. And then the woman with the cool hair. And really I feel cool like hair, a so. lot
2: of the main cast is really, I feel like that, you know, we need, we need more Tilly. We need more Saru. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's members of the main cast that have not had their episode
1: yet. No. And I thought I love Tilly. She's so deserves to be the first curse on Star Trek. Like I love that the first curse on Star Trek is somebody expressing enthusiasm and joy that felt right to me, yeah, yeah um,
2: well, yeah, I mean the the real first curse word which I believe is in generation is in it's in one of the next generation movies, is a similar it's data, like yeah. it's a similar sort of feeling, um hmm. and that if if there's a way to like encapsulate what Star Trek is all about is people swearing about joy.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, Yeah, wasn't it where they're serious, about to crash in generations? It's where they're gonna crash in yeah. generations and he's got the emotional chip and he goes like oh shit as they're about to hit the ground. Yes. I remember that. See, so yeah I know some Star Trek <laughs> mm. Yeah.
2: And like <laughs> I know thing, I think I see for everyone <laughs> when I say to hell with our orders sir." like <laughs> Star Trek has a law well, And just all of the fun Klingon wearing Star Trek has a long and colorful history of playing with language in that particular way successfully.
1: Another thing that the that the show did that I want people to give a credit for is having creature feature episodes. Like the whole thing with the tardigrade was so brilliant. I just want to think, I think one of the things that was so smart about it is that the show makes us care about Ripper because it compares it to an actual animal that we know and recognize, but it's not like a cutesy animal that we know and recognize it's not like it looks like a it's not like a, a kitty cat or something. I think that would read to our modern eyes you know, like over the top. But it's a tardigrade. And you know, only nerdy people know what a tardigrade is. I know what a tardigrade is. Um but the choice oh, of it tardigrade. being a tardigrade in particular It's a little microscopic animal that yes. looks like Ripper. I
2: love that. And like
1: <laughs> But I just like, I, I mean, and I just love, I, I, sorry, that was for anyone who doesn't know. And I thought that that was a wise choice because, but when you're comparing this fictional animal to something that we actually know of as a reference point, but they're making it be one that's not like completely overused and that's still sort of mysterious and strange. You know, when it's sleep state, I like wanted to cry. I was like, it's the water bridge, Like that just hurt my heart so much. Um... And I, but I, but I just think like from a writing standpoint, like having the tardi- having the tardigrade be a tardigrade was a very sharp way to play the audience, and I want to applaud them for that. Um, but we literally did have an episode that was just people, you know, wondering what to do, what to do about a mysterious, dangerous alien creature, and then setting it free, and like that's so so Star Trek.
2: Yeah, and I feel like that and the time loop episode are the ones that have stuck with me the most. And it's unusual to find especially sort of a prestige drama where the most successful episodes are the ones that are very standalone. Hmm. But at the same time, it that's Star Trek, too, is that like as much as you appreciate an arc... Like the ones that tend to stand out are the ones that are fairly self contained with implications for the arc.
0: That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and I think part of that is also because they're staying alone, they do stand out. Because a lot of the other ones, they don't necessarily feel like complete episodes in that you need to know what came before, what came after, and are part of that, like they're part of that arc and a big story that's going on. It's hard to completely enjoy them because you don't know, know where it's going. Um so you, you know, you have a piece of a puzzle and not all of it, but like the I'm I'm I completely agree with you. My favorite episode is but is absolutely the loot absolute episode and then the second target episode. Um and mm-hmm. partially is because both of them are pretty standalone in what, what they do. Though I love Torture episode, uh, where when Lorca is captured, which is kind of standalone, too, I think, um, partially because it was I loved what they were hinting at and not self, like not actually telling with Tyler. Um, I think That was just a great episode because it was hinting at everything. Also made me as if we probably imagine things worse than actually described.
2: yeah so I think we're all kind of getting at the same thing where which is that as much as discovery is leaning on its art based narrative, it really is working better as a show of individual episodes, and it's almost something that the production and writing staff might want to embrace rather than fighting since they're doing such a good job of the of these self contained pieces that add up to an arc.
0: I, I also think it's interesting because the further it's gone in the um, uh, first half of the season, the further they're getting away from from the big arc, uh, the first like three or four episodes are heavy in setting up the universe and the war and where they're going. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is all it's going to be, but by towards the end of it, it seemed to be more focused on the individual characters, the, their individual arcs. Um, how they're dealing with things and that big picture story was more towards the background. It became the setting for everything as opposed to the driver.
1: Yeah, huh. I agree with
0: you.
1: that's cool. Yeah. That's
0: cool. And now it looks well, like where he, it's going. Mm-hmm. I would say are we can discuss where you yeah. have maybe theories as to where Going for the second half because that's going to be kind well, of actually I was gonna,
1: that, that was actually one of the things I was going to raise. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> well, I just I, 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 I just I kind else. of like I can't deal with what I can't like what, the whole thing with Stamets and like just one more jump. I'm literally shouting at my screen, "Don't yeah. do it! Don't do it!" Because like that that is a trope. Like one more day till retirement, and then we'll go. Yeah. Sit with well, him.
2: when he kissed his husband, I was like, okay, that's it. He's never coming yeah. back.
1: And Probably that was like.
0: the, the the music uh the, well, not the musical, we're gonna go watch that musical together honey. Yeah. yeah, when he said that, I'm sitting there and like, oh yeah, we've seen this.
2: And it's like I Which didn't didn't just that. footnote, when he says we're gonna see La M, which is an opera, yeah, but Rent is a is, La contem- is a contemporary adaptation mm-hmm. of La M. So it was basically like the writers having a funny um it was like, thank you, let's move on. I, I sort of yelled no humor.
0: at my TV when he said <laughs> it, yeah.
2: was, it was like a different kind of nerd humor. It, it was the like, here is our
1: gift to the people who are only watching this because they're really into rent. <laughs> well, then my, my thing is like, if he, you know, we know he's not immediately dead. Like we see from the coming next season stuff that he's not dead, dead. But I'm just, this better not get into bury your gaze territory because I'm not. Ready? We've only they only kissed once, and the fact that it took them to the last episode, like actually, kind of kills me a little bit. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. Like, definitely, he's played with time and space, and maybe he ends up in some sort of like Da-Kun-like reality. But, and I'm not against there being something bad that happens to him. I think that's fine. I just don't want him to be dead. That's what matters to me.
2: Well, I think that. That, that contractual spoilers indicate that he is not dead—at least not for the next for the second half of the season—that <laughs> that he will be doing something because Happy yeah, I mean, Rapp is being paid to do something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's,
0: that was kind of a thought too. I was just like, right, we we. we. It's that unfortunate of a clearly he this is where this is going and, and when he goes and makes the loud bohem and it all it's, it's all very clear on that and there, I think there's there was still so much more to mine with his relationship and the, just the character as a whole and yeah it it feels like it went a little bit quick in the department as to where they went with it all. I would have liked to see him maybe explore his relationship a little bit more also partly because he's an interesting character like at first I was convinced that he was just a curmudgeon irritating person and uh, kind of like me on screen uh, and then the more we mm-hmm. watched it uh, you know he, he definitely has much more to him than like what we're, we're led to believe or introduced mm-hmm But it's good. Yeah, and I wish
2: that they'd had the space to do that with more of the supporting characters and I'm just really crossing my fingers that the back half gives us the same thing for Tilly, for example, which something that we haven't brought up yet and especially talking about some of the diversity in the show, there's been a lot of fan discussion about Tilly as neuroatypical and people on the autism spectrum saying that they see a lot of themselves in a lot of her behavior. Um, and I was, but that hasn't been
1: consistently portrayed. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that. I've heard it from people who were autistic. So if that works for them, then I'm like, yep, it's there. Um, I definitely think that this series would benefit from more diversity in terms of ability. Like we see one person who uses a wheelchair to get around, you know, Lorca has a disability, but nobody really like acknowledges it or talks about it that way. Um, but yeah, I know that that's worked for a lot of other folks.
0: Which is also an interesting one is that I, yeah, would that, so with, with Lorca I always thought was interesting in that, yes, he he does have a disability, but they're also in the future at the point, like, how would they treat that? You know, we didn't, you know, we saw it come up with, with Jordy every so often in Next Generation, so it came up a lot um, and was used in different ways. Uh, but I don't remember anything, like, really hard. That I was like, oh, Jordy is disabled. So, like, would they be kind of past that to the point that, like, someone that's maybe LGBT is just, like, it is. Like, we're not thinking about it, and it's just the way, you know, things are, and people... Don't even think about it at this point anywhere because it's just so acceptable and, and normal and in everyday life and um, we're kind of you know past that. So I've kind of wondered about that. To some you know in some ways that they might just not bring it up because as a society they don't bring. It up.
2: And I think the treatment of Jordy would certainly support that, and the way that his. Sort of identity as a blind person is held as important, but also not something that, that like he 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 doesn't. I'm trying to think of a of a, way, of a way to 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 phrase it, but like it's important to him that he's blind and everybody mm-hmm. recognizes that, but it's not seen as. Um there there as as a source of inequality or a source of um you know, oh. of people thinking that he's less capable or any of that.
0: Well there's that great speech and um I'm trying it just kinda of reminded me of where you with it. There was a scene in, in Generations where he with uh Roddy McDowell, I can't think of his character's name, but he he's and talking to George about his fight and all that and he'd go back and forth. And George's response is like, oh, this is who I am. This is, like, completely normal. Everyone treats me as normal. Like, why the hell would I change? And Roddy McDonald just keeps on, like, killing him over and over and over about it. Um, so I wondered about that. I was like, maybe it's kind of past that. So how much discuss it? Like, I, I don't know.
1: Well, I definitely think it's important to not just be like, oh, disabilities are a thing to be, quote, solved, quote, and in the future,
0: you know. But they don't really solve yeah. it. That's the thing that I think is interesting. Well, that's the it, point, like, is
1: you're not supposed to, quote, solve it. It's like, that's offensive. Right. Like, I'm saying that, you know.
0: Right. And they don't. I think that's why I appreciate it, that they don't. Like, mm-hmm. Jordy wasn't solved. Like, he's got glasses. It's not like they just suddenly said, oh, got eyes and you can see. Um, you know, Tilly you- Tilly and everyone seems. I mean, Tilly's awesome. I love Tilly. It seems everyone seems mm-hmm. like really like. Tilly. Um, and with with Lorca, like he puts in eye drops every so often, and it's, just, it's it. And every so, and his room has to be dim and light be like slightly turned on. it's Not that it's. It just seems like for them, it is everyday part of their life, so they don't think about it. If that makes sense. For, and not just the person themselves, but everyone else around it. It was only like once I, in the episode, or twice in the episodes, and one was with Michael, and the second one was, where they turned on the light really quick for Orca, and he was just like, "Oh no. And they just they oh shit. For that. Hmm.
1: I mean, it yeah. is sort of like he's keeping his disability because he wants to be able to brood about it. Like Yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, he wants to keep it. I've got the sense he wants to keep it because he—it's a scar for him to remember of what he did. Where he, like, he destroyed. In his other own- words,
2: he wants to keep it so he can brood about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is his scar, and this is his, this is his bullet in the shoulder that he's never going to take out, so he can remember having yes, you know, being the badass. It's type the literalization
2: thing. Yeah. of his man pain.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> putting it.
2: If if this was the kind of show where you had to do like um, after the fact show titles, I think that would be your show title. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. One thing I want to do talk about behind the series is I was looking at the writing staff. It looks like there are three women writers and only two people are writers on the show. I did not map out the uh, directors because I used to work for the Writers Guild, so I always forget that directors are a thing. I guess I could go do that now. (laughs) Directors, they're a thing. Um, But uh, yeah, they could do better. They could definitely do better than that.
2: They can do better, but they could also do worse. It's, it's acceptable, that could be better.
1: Well, it's certainly like, that, you know, it's having like three women and two people of color puts it in the same league. Like the uh, nightly talk shows, like, you know, like Letterman and That Miss and I've been giving those shows grief for forever. So, I mean, it's pretty much in line with like what I give other shows grief for doing. Um, I, I, I did not have a chance to take a look over at the director list, but I should do that.
2: It's not great. It's about the same.
1: Yeah, a lot of the same names. Oh, Jonathan Frakes did an episode. His uh, our our former Riker, who is also really known as being a director of like lots and lots of stuff. Um, and
2: at the time, he he his first directing was on Next Generation, and he directed some of the best episodes of Next Generation.
1: Totally. And then with He sort chose. of
2: shifted towards direction as a result of those experiences. And I don't quote me on this, but I mm-hmm. think he has now directed an episode of every Star Trek series except the original series. Cool. For reasons of being a
1: small child when that was on. Um, <laughs> so looking around, it looks like there are no women directors. There is one black. Yeah, I didn't see any and I can't tell what this particular individual. But yeah, that's not good. Good. Like, you know, the season of of Preacher had a lot of women directors and a lot of women writers on it, I noticed, actually.
0: Get with the program.
1: Anyway. Uh, Are there other topics that people want to make sure we hit up before we go?
0: Actually, there might be one female director. Hold on. There's one Um, female director.
1: Who? Oh, that doesn't look like... I thought that
0: I don't see... In the bio, it says she. She, then she you're right. Production. Okay,
1: one woman. Okay. There's one. Okay. Um, are there any other things we want to hit up about the show before we get Sarah, for example?
2: You kind of hit my list. I mean, my real thing that I keep going back to is I love how many different kinds of people are getting into this and that it's people who have been Star Trek fans forever and people for whom this is really their first Star Trek and they're getting into it through other directions. And that's really neat to me. And it's also like, go back, watch the old stuff. A lot of it holds up. But, um, and this is a richer show. If you know, if you know more of the universe and the more of the universe, you know, the richer it gets, unless you're the kind of person who wants to sit and complain about how like it isn't Captain Kirk. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah that that's really like that's kind of what I'd hoped for it was that it would find a different audience than Star Trek has had before um, and as much as I think us old Trekkies are a little cranky about things that are different like it is succeeding in drawing people by oh. being what it is
1: yeah, I I just I wish it wasn't limiting its audience by being a problem that nobody cares about for, it's limited for. Like CBS, the dumbest thing you could possibly limit its audience by doing.
2: People are doing it, an awesome job of pirating it, apparently. Um, I am paying no, that, for that, it. That so depresses so me because I am it's a like, problem. But no, I know, <laughs> I
1: know you're not. I know you're not. I mean, but that definitely depresses me because, like. People, I want the writers and the folks to be making money off the show being seen and putting it on a CBS platform that nobody cares about. They've actually done the worst thing they could do on it.
2: And I'm actually there was um, there there was a stre- an NBC streaming service called CISO that is folding at the end of the year. There's been a lot of like niche streaming services that have been dying, and I sort of wonder about what happens to this if CBS All Access fails?
1: Wow. That's a very good question. I think about not having access to this. I and mean, the C S all access shows? Like I don't even think so. I'm not really paying attention to CBS because I'm not eighty but, years old. But like
2: there's there's um a, a good wife spin off which I actually watch, um, which is terrific. <laughs> Which is absolutely excellent And really nobody is watching that And the audience for this If if you're one of the three people Who is into that kind of thing It's really good Um, And they've got A sitcom that I think is starting There's been a few things um, But not very much
1: Yeah Well there you have it ladies and gentlemen they're well, going to be getting more of this in the new year. Um, I, I definitely wish I didn't have to wait that long. Um, I really like that last end of the season leaving off. Do you think that they went through like, into, like a different platform? I mean, where are they now? Where is it going? I guess they don't it platform. But are they? Did they like pass through some wormhole with their big failed jump? Like, I mean, we don't even know where they are now. It sort of sucks having to wait for January, but it's not unreasonable to have a season break. And it gives some folks yeah. a chance to catch up on the show,
2: right? And Star Trek loves its cliffhangers, so here we are.
1: <laughs> That's true. It's definitely in line with that grand tradition.
2: Yeah, I so, think we kind of forget now because we, we binge it now, but those cliffhangers were a big deal at the time.
1: Hmm. Well, um, I think that's pretty much covered the basis of what I wanted to cover, and you said the same, but I had to hop off for a second. Um, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find your ongoing uh, j- journalistic and creative works?
2: Sure. Um, my, cre- my journalistic output on the internet lately um, has been mostly about the sport of figure skating, which now that we have a Winter Olympics coming up, people might actually be more interested in that. Um, it's at thefinersports.com. I'm on Twitter at Tadasha, which is P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. I have a Tumblr, which is all figure skating and gymnastics. Um, My Twitter is more diverse. Um, That's (laughs) about. I have an Instagram I never use. That's about it.
1: Noted. Well, uh, I'm sure you all know that you can find Graphic Policy at GraphicPolicy.com. Graphic Policy on Twitter and uh, if you've missed the beginning of this episode, you can be able to, you'll can you be able to catch up on it on our iTunes at Graphic Policy and we'll also download it at Blog Talk Radio soon. It'll be at Stitcher and SoundCloud and the usual platforms for podcasting. Uh, I myself am on Twitter all the goddamn time at L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Brett, what were you saying?
0: I was about to say and where can we find you? But you beat me. <laughs> there I am. Here we are. So that's it, you
1: guys. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, it was a great discussion. I can't Thank wait you to uh, doing round two for the second half of the season. Because this is going to be an interesting. Mm-hmm. One. So I guess we'll 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 continue in like March. We'll be part two. So as always, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky. And and live long and prosper. We're going to go with that.